Hi, I'm Julie Wilkinson and I'm a Chartered Management Accountant and I'm excited to be launching the Build and Exit podcast. This podcast is for business owners and entrepreneurs who are looking to expand their business portfolio by acquisition or at some point in the future want to exit their business. We're going to bring real life stories and experiences of people who have grown by acquisition, who have exited their businesses and other areas of business such as funding and cash flows. So there'll be lots of opportunity to learn different areas of business and how you can, in the end, transition your business from a lifestyle to an asset. So look forward to seeing you soon. Hi, and welcome to the Build and Exit podcast. I'm really excited to have our first guest of the show, Paul Quirk. Paul worked in investment banking for nine years with JP Morgan and recently started his own uh, entrepreneurial journey and has actually successfully acquired a business over the last few months of um, last six months. Five billion turnover, um, 700 EBITDA, and I'm really excited to talk through his journey and what he's learned from the process, because um, I think this is a really powerful acquisition story. So first of all, I just want to hand over to you, Paul, if you can give us a bit of a background about yourself. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Julie. Uh, and it's an honor to be your first guest. So you've been a guest on my podcast, which was a great episode. So a little bit about me. Uh, so I guess, as you alluded to, I spent some time at JP Morgan. Uh, probably about nine years, uh, most of the time in Geneva, Switzerland, but a little bit of time in London and New York. Uh, it was it was really interesting and fascinating, and I learned a lot. But I always had a bit of an entrepreneurial itch. Uh, I heard about a colleague who had done something similar to what I guess I've started to do now, and he was very successful. Um, and I didn't really know at that time that buying a business was an option. I thought to be an entrepreneur, you needed to start something have a great idea, a revolutionary idea, and actually execute on that. And it was always so difficult to think of an interesting idea. So I just kept on being, being, being a good employee. But then when I heard about this option, I found it interesting, slowly started looking into it, devised a bit of a plan on, on, on how it could work. Uh, because I didn't, I, I eventually quit my job to search full-time for the acquisition. So that needed some planning too. But Eventually, as you said, six months ago, acquired this business, which is a fantastic business um, and excited to, to have moved over to the operational side, really enjoying that too. Uh, so far, so good. So yeah, that's the high level background. Happy to dig deeper into anything that you think may be interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's really, really interesting moving from corporate sort of to your entrepreneurial. I suppose, what, how quick did you make that journey? Was it something you found easy? Hmm. Easy... Not, not, not too easy. <laughs> so like I alluded to a moment ago, I had heard about someone who did it um, via what, I don't know if you've heard of a search fund. So it's kind of a traditional, a traditional search fund. So this kind of ETA entrepreneurship through acquisition is taught at a few MBAs started in the US, I think Stanford and Harvard were the two biggest ones. And there's a very kind of um standard process by which you kind of raise capital to search for your business and then you acquire it and there's very set set uh, guidelines and rules as to how that plays out and as an asset class if you can refer to it as that it's been very successful stanford kind of does a report every two years on the success of these kind of acquisition uh entrepreneurs or these entrepreneurial acquisitions so he did that the guy that i heard about uh who had done it a colleague of mine and he did it in Mexico, was very successful. And that kind of got me thinking about this as an option. 
um, at the time, I think my my wife may have been pregnant at the time, so I kind of just paused for for, for a little bit. I thought it's probably not the best time to to leave, uh, and um, you know, uh, the security of a full time job. And a couple of years later, an opportunity presented itself that I could step away and pursue this. Uh, so I did, uh, knowing you know, typically from those statistics I referred to that Stanford tracks it takes about 24 months on average to acquire a business of a certain size if you're searching full-time. So I'd kind of prepared for that um, time frame. I think maybe I thought I could do it quicker and I probably did do it a little bit quicker than that, but you know, financially prepared for that and then set out on the journey. So it wasn't exactly easy, but I think I was semi-prepared, as, as, as prepared as you can be, I guess, because it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster that search um, journey to the first acquisition, but there is a bit of a playbook, um, more more so than there were probably for the pioneers that took that took this journey 10, 20, 30 years ago. So that is helpful. And then early on in the journey, I launched a podcast myself to kind of chronicle my journey and speak to interesting people to try and accelerate my learning. Because even though I come from a banking background, it wasn't really private equity related. Uh, so I didn't really have a network to lean on uh, to to buy businesses. So that helped me a lot. And yeah, that, that's it at a high level. Yeah, really good. Yeah, because it's interesting about the journey of um, finding the deals, because obviously we I've been on your podcast as well, work quite a lot on the acquisition space. So how for people that are coming into this and thinking about doing the similar thing, I mean, how did you how first of all, how did you decide the industry and and, and what mm-hmm. how did you find your first deal? Like what, what methods did you go through? Because there's lots of different avenues people can take. So it's interesting to hear how you find them. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tackle why this industry first. So you mentioned kind of the high level financials of, of my company, but it's a window and door installation company. We also do kind of living extensions. So generally broad home improvement products. Uh, I didn't initially think about this sector uh, when I started looking into it. I would just look at, you know, a whole bunch of different things as I was learning and kind of figuring things out. And then I, as, as a good uh, investment analyst does kind of dug into each sector and developed a little bit of a thesis, whether it was a good one or a bad one. And at first appearance, the you know I thought this was kind of construction linked, which I later learned it wasn't. The replacement market in the UK is really uh, booming, given the energy efficiencies. It's the oldest UK housing stock is the oldest in Europe and the least energy efficient. So as I started to dig into the sector, I started learning there's probably some decent tailwinds and, and at worst an evergreen market in the UK. So that kind of got me excited. There is the kind of retail sale, non-recurring nature of the business, which some people don't like. Um, I have my own thoughts on that for small businesses. I think generally those companies can be quite concentrated on one or two big customers, whereas that is not the case in my business. And then also you can kind of scale up marketing up and down to, to, you know, to drive sales as and when you need it. At least that's what I'm learning so far. So I, I didn't completely dislike that business model. And like I said, I liked the industry. So that was... You know, I, the, a deal came across my plate early on, and then I dug into the sector after the fact, and then I thought, okay, this is interesting. But I looked at a whole bunch of different sectors throughout the journey. I had a deal fall apart on the finish line in the fire and security sector, which is quite a popular one, um, and and I kept an open mind. And then this specific deal came up. Um, I was speaking to a corporate finance uh, advisor on a different deal, and it just wasn't wasn't a good fit. I think we both agreed. And, and he mentioned a few other deals that he had live at that moment, one being this one. 
And obviously I had a bit of a industry thesis and kind of had dug into the industry. So I was quite keen to look at this. And then a few months down the line, um, a lot of you know ups and downs <laughs> from that moment, but essentially that was the deal that I ended up acquiring. Uh, so that was the sector and you know why I chose the sector. Uh, and then to your second question on deal sourcing, I guess I used you know the, the, the ways most people do. I, I started using the classic main street brokers, if you can call them that. I found that to be quite a frustrating process, if I'm being honest. I found the disconnect between what sellers expected versus what should be fair, well, what I would think would be a fair price, given kind of what the finance terms are like and um, you know just, just the market here in the UK. There was a huge disconnect. I later learned that those same brokers are probably not aligned with the same incentives as sellers. So that's, that's an interesting dynamic, uh, but I'm not going to get into all of that. And then I did some proprietary outreach. So I tried direct mail. I didn't really like that because it's very difficult statistically to figure out, you know, how many people are reading these. So I tried the email route where you can kind of track, had limited success with that. And then I, I guess probably from the podcast and building relationships, I got into kind of the corporate finance and accounting network, which you could argue is probably probably got stronger representation and higher quality deals. At least that's my opinion. And that was helpful because it's kind of deals that are live. So, you know, the, the seller wants to sell. Uh, a lot of the information is already prepared for you. And they're, they're represented by an intermediary that has better alignment of incentives, i.e. compensated on the sale mostly rather than a retainer. And, you know, from early discussions with this corporate finance company, it was clear that what I thought was a fair price was what they thought was a fair price and it just made the process a lot smoother. So if you can build those connections for any aspiring buyers of business, I, I would say that would be a good route to go down, but that's eventually how I sourced the deal. But I've, I've, I have friends who've done it both ways, Main Street brokers, proprietary. So, you know, essentially there's an aspect to luck to all of this. So you need to get a little bit lucky, I think, to find the company that you eventually buy. Yeah. And it was interesting that you're saying like the type of like you did a lot of research on the industry. So the industry that you actually ended up acquiring in, you haven't had experience in working in that industry previously. Because obviously you're from investment no, banking. No, I, yeah, I guess uh, unless I was going to buy some kind of financial advisory company, there wasn't ever going to be an industry that I had experience in. So it was all going to be new to me. And, I, I mean, I, I mentioned kind of the, the traditional search model that was you know, popularized by Stanford and Harvard. That's generally the case. You have these MBA graduates that are young, ambitious people that want to just go out and, and kind of tackle one of these small businesses, thinking that they can maybe grow it, um, add value, maybe modernize it, or however they think they can grow it. But typically, they don't have the specific sector experience, not, not, not in every case, but uh, a lot of times. So because it was a bit of a playbook and, and a track record of people doing something like I had done, I, you know, I backed myself and and hopefully it'll be successful, but I just decided to back myself. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's great. I mean, sometimes I actually think not knowing the industry can be a benefit because you sometimes if you know it, you can might try and micromanage all the processes a little bit. But how did yeah. you find, so the sellers of the industry, obviously, that you're buying into, I mean, how did you get them on board that you could actually run the company after acquisition with no experience? What, how, well, how did that journey go? Yeah, I think um, uh, early conversations with the sellers were, were really good. I think we had aligned goals. Uh, my approach is and, and wasn't to kind of come in and think I know everything. It, it was important for me that they kind of stay on board for a little bit and help me, not 
you know, just to ensure a smooth transition, but just to get me up to speed. And that was also important to them. They wanted, I think they wanted someone who would carry their business forward and they knew um, it may take some time to train someone up like me, but they were fine with that. And, and they have been great. I mean, it's six months in, but we still have a very good relationship. I mean, they help out a ton. And I think they've got a bit of uh, renewed energy, if you will, because they see me coming in excited and, and maybe gets them a little bit excited. So that's been really great and probably fortunate because I know it doesn't always go down like that. But I think we just had aligned goals from the beginning, which is helpful because the deal is going to fall apart six or seven times throughout due diligence. So if you don't have that aligned vision with the owners uh, from the start, it's probably a bit of a red flag. You can probably still get deals done, I, I guess, but definitely it, it helps. And, and it probably helps post-acquisition too, because you know if you don't have the sector experience, you're going to lean on them quite heavily. And if you have a good relationship with them and you have similar goals, it just makes things a lot easier. Yeah. And we're going to have a little bit of competition here. So how many days did it take you to close heads of terms? Heads of terms? Um, hmm. I don't know, to be honest. That wasn't the long, the longest part was trying to raise the debt financing, which we can get into. But um, heads of terms wasn't too bad. I was away in South Africa when I had the first discussion. And I and I was actually away for two, two months in South Africa. I was still kind of searching and working during the time, but I was also, you know, a little bit... Um, Maybe maybe on holiday mode a little bit. So I would say maybe maybe a month after the first conversation, but it was pretty clear after after the, the first call that we were pretty aligned. So it could have gone quicker. I think um, also maybe I I think at the time I had other live deals at the moment, so I just wanted to make sure that whichever one I decided to go down was the right one, so I could commit all my energy towards that. So it could have definitely been definitely been quicker. Yeah, uh, but but maybe a month. Okay, so not too bad. I was it was just a little yeah. bit because I I actually signed I mean, my heads of terms in one day when I did my deal because we had but we had oh, a wow. few conversations yeah. <laughs> before the um uh there was quite a bit of time trying to get the financials from them so there was a few conversations back and forth so anyway I just I mean I always interested to hear how long heads of terms takes because sometimes they can take months <laughs> so yours wasn't too bad actually no no not too bad yeah so in terms of the financing then so. Uh, what type of financing did you go for in the end for the deal? So, I mean, I guess at a high level, the capital structure is a little bit of equity, a little bit of debt, and a little bit of seller financing. Um, and with this business, I guess what's nice from a management standpoint is it's very asset light. There's not a lot of capex and there's not a lot of inventory. It's mainly just work in progress. So it's you know makes it easier to manage. However, given that there's no assets, there's no debtor book, it's more complicated because there's no assets to use as collateral, I guess, or to leverage against. So purely, it leaves you with cash flow loans as the only option. And then I mentioned there's there's a non-recurring revenue component. So kind of, you know, there's a little bit of added risk around that. Mm. So it was very complicated. I had to go down kind of the alternative lenders because your main street banks won't look at, a, at kind of an outside manager buying in. So the options were limited and around the time where I was, you know, I had about five lenders on board with indicative terms. And then at that time, kind of the war in Ukraine broke out, inflation picked up and they all kind of went from yes to no. So I had to go back to the drawing board and, and look again and, and eventually come up with a solution where the amount I wanted on debt had to be less than what I would have liked. And fortunately, I guess, going back to the good relationship with the sellers, they absorbed a little bit of that to shift it onto the deferred. 
Um, and then the equity component came from myself. And then I have a few um, minority investors um, that have come on board, but for the most part, it's, it's, it's me. And uh, yeah, so I think that, that's it at a high level, uh, but it, it definitely wasn't easy. The debt market, I think at the best of times in the UK is not easy compared to what I hear of friends and people I know doing it in other countries. But but that's not to say it cannot be done. Yeah. And out of interest, I mean, when you went for the cash flow financing, did they were they asking for cash flows and forecasts? Yeah, so it's pretty complex. Um, they'll want to see basically an integrated three-statement model on the historicals and then built out a forecast from there, incorporating kind of the debt and servicing of that debt as you go forward. So, I mean, I... I don't have an accounting background. Um, I have, I guess, like a kind of more an investment background. So it was not the easiest thing to do, but eventually, you know, I, I, I tackled it and could figure it out. So I think uh, it's probably worth having someone who has experience to do that for you. Because when you go and approach the lenders, I think they use that as a filtering mechanism, right? They know not everyone is going to be financially savvy, but they want to see if you, I think, can do a good job and put in that work is just a first test to see like okay is this is this person worth us backing because they're essentially investing in you even though it's debt not equity they're taking some credit risk on you so that was quite complicated uh and it, and it took me some time and then every lender you speak to has different lending terms and different amortization schedules so you've got to tweak the model every time and then they want to question your growth rates and everything so you want a model that's kind of scalable because everyone's going to ask you to change this change that and if you just kind of card coded everything you'll break the model and have to start again so it's quite an important piece of the puzzle no one really ever talks about that you probably know a lot about that julie given kind of your experience in the world that you live in but kind of the from from the people looking to acquire it's really not something that people spend a lot of time with and, and that has to go alongside a a broad investor or lender presentation like they want to see a business model forecasts mm-hmm. uh, what the team looks like where do you think the growth levers are etc so so it really is almost like you're reaching out to equity investors to raise equity capital the debt lenders want to see the same things yeah we would we would probably call that a bit of a high level pitch deck with like the information of mm. the accounts yeah well it's good that you managed to pull yeah. that together um because they can be complicated especially if you're going for quite a high value loan so yeah that's great yeah that's that's probably one skill set i could pull from my prior life to yeah. for this journey yeah yeah <laughs> so um so this is really good. So it was successful. You closed heads of terms and you did the due diligence. Did you find, because uh, of the route you went down, that the seller had good information or were you questioning the information through due diligence? Not really. I mean, there were a few bits and pieces where I wanted to dig deeper. But I think, again, going back to the benefit of dealing with with like a corporate finance intermediary, kind of the data room is all, already almost kind of somewhat populated so you, you start asking for things and digging deeper and it's already there prepared uh not for everything but already the starting point is just you know so far ahead of the curve so that was quite helpful there were definitely things like industry wise that are particular if you will about this industry that you know i'd want to dig into a little bit more but for the most part there were no major red flags um yeah i mean like i said there were a few contested issues as they always are but like i mean I say contested, it wasn't that contested, but I mean, you, you kind of debate a few things, but for the most part, it was pretty smooth sailing, uh, at least in terms of dealing with the, the, the outgoing owners. 
Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because I think it's brilliant you found it through this corporate finance seller because, I mean, we know doing the, we, with the exit side and the buy side is, I would definitely, this is where it comes down to the seller really, is I think mm. when you're going, if you've got the information prepared ready for the for the buy side in the first place, it makes everything a lot smoother. Because um, I just know from experience yeah. is once you start seeing poor information, you start distrusting the numbers and then you start getting lots of different questions. Whereas if someone's giving you the information and you're trusting it, you know, and it, you know, and it looks sensible, it's answering probably 60, 70% of your questions. It makes everything a lot easier. Um, yeah, so, absolutely. so yeah. So, so you successfully closed. So how are you now post acquisition? I mean, what have your challenges been, would you say, since post-acquisition? Yeah, so it's been six months. I think it's safe to say I'm now an expert. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's been it's been good. I mean, like I said early on, the, the two outgoing owners or two of the three outgoing owners have, have stayed alongside me and, and you know, have just continued to, I guess, do what they've always done and, and they're doing a great job. So that's been really helpful. So I've almost kind of seen myself or approached it with them and the rest of the staff as as a bit of a consultant for hire, if you will. Like there's interesting initiatives and things that they wanted to do and that I think we should do, but no one's really had the bandwidth. So I kind of take the lead on those things. Um, I hired in and basically revamped the entire finance team. I, I think um, we, we discussed uh, this, I think, when, when you were on the importance of having a finance team, I, I debated outsourcing it to kind of a like a fractional CFO, which I think uh, we debated at that time. But I thought for me, for for this first acquisition, I wanted the people in-house. And that's been extremely beneficial to kind of have robust forecasting and kind of management accounts done on a monthly basis because these things weren't really done in the past. So really, that's been helpful. But in general, the team, the people are really good. Uh, and there's, there's, there's challenges now and then, like, you know, I think everyone asked me for a raise within me a week of being here. So you've got to handle those conversations <laughs> um, and a few other kind of people related issues. Uh, well, not, not issues, that's not the right term, but, but you know, there, there are some HR components that I probably didn't anticipate um, being some of the operational hurdles that I have to tackle in the first few months. But so far, it's been okay. I mean, uh, I think we had our best January and February on record, which is good given what you hear the news headlines uh are every day every every week about like recession and cost of living crisis and so that week that gave us a little bit of anxiety last year but so far so good um it's very hard for me to try and claim victory or anything because everyone else has just been doing what they've been doing in the past so i guess i'm just lucky to have inherited a good team uh, so i'm just trying not to break anything at this point yeah, and I think you're lucky. I mean, maybe this is the size of deal because going for a five mil business, I mean, we tend to find anything lower than two mil um, tends to be more owner operated and the bigger you go. It, so it seems mm. like yours was quite self-sufficient, the deal that you're buying. So that's obviously benefited you. Would you agree that it was kind of running properly without before you bought it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, for sure, the two owners that have stayed on are are important to the business and you know will when they do need to be replaced will will need some high caliber individuals but below then there's you know very strong second tier management that are that are capable of doing their job uh and then probably in total we have 30 people working working here and you know for the most part everyone does a really good job and is keen and eager to kind of push the business forward so that can be helpful because I can imagine as you go smaller, you know, the, the owner kind of 
I don't know if you've read E-Myth or if the listeners have read that book. If not, I, I recommend it. But you kind of get these people who were employees of a business in the same sector. They decide to spin out and start their business. Then they get to kind of 2 million. But in reality, they just have a job, but they're the owner of their business, which is their job. And they haven't really kind of gone to that next level, um, which I think this business was able to get to. So that is definitely a helpful factor, I think, because if I could try and imagine myself doing what I do now, plus what the two owners that are still on board do, I think I would <laughs> I'd probably, I'd probably uh, sink quite quickly. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. It's a really good story, actually. I think there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of people going into acquisitions at the minute. So it's nice to hear success stories of people that have, you know, sort of moved from a corporate world, um, entrepreneur, and then actually successfully acquired. So it's really good. So what would you say is your biggest learning from this acquisition? Hmm, that's a good question. I think, so in terms of the actual acquisition, I think I kind of maybe touched on it earlier, but having, having the alignment with the existing team that, and especially owners, if they're going to stay on board is important. I think it helps you close the acquisition, like when, when times get uh, tough during negotiations or during due diligence, having a good relationship with the seller is helpful. And then post acquisition, it's just massively helpful. So that would be one key aspect. And then just don't underestimate the people side of it. I think uh, coming across as, as humble, wanting to learn, I'm talking about myself uh, as the new owner. Like I, you know, I said to everyone quite early on that you know I, I'm I'm the dumb one in the room here. So if you don't mind, I'm going to be asking lots of questions and, and leaning on you to help me. I don't I don't want to come across, and I, I couldn't afford to come across as someone you know who who's the boss. Kind of that have have that mentality, even though it's not really kind of my personality. I think coming across as as humble and maybe a little bit curious is helpful. Uh, it gets everyone on board and and actually helps you learn quicker. I think. And don't underestimate the search if I'm going kind of a little more back in time. It is not easy. It, it is definitely tough. It's rewarding when you get it done, but it's um, it, it's it's not easy. So I would say don't underestimate that. Like I see some people trying to do it part-time and kind of umming and aahing. It really is a full-time commitment, I think. Um, I try and you know help people and share my knowledge and resources with, with my podcast, but um, hopefully I don't make it sound like it's an easy endeavor because it's not, but it's definitely rewarding and, and operating if it fits your lifestyle is, is great too. Yeah, definitely. No, it's really good. It's a really good story. So what's next for you then? What, what's your future plans? Are you looking to do more acquisitions? Yeah, I'm definitely open to it. Um, the funny, I don't know if it's funny, I guess it's a nice aspect of maybe having the track record now of acquiring one business in a specific sector. And maybe because of the people I met through the podcast, I just get deals sent to me now, which is, it's, it's, it's interesting after two years of like fighting tooth and nail to try get people to show me deals. Uh, so that's an interesting dynamic. And, and I'm definitely like the plan is to grow this business. You can grow inorganically relatively. I don't want to say easily, but it's like the CapEx investment is not significant. Uh, you can do it in a, in a smart way, but the attraction to growth is obviously you could buy an existing brand, which is helpful, and the staff that goes along it because the labor market's quite tight uh, in this industry. So definitely looking at other deals. Um, and uh, so anyone, if you have any great deals in sectors, please send them. <laughs> but but I don't plan on sitting around. So the plan is to grow both inorganically and organically. Um, the existing business now, I think it can even capture more market share in its in its kind of 
local region. So that's also something that I'm focused on. So yeah, it's early days, but um, keeping all options open and, and looking at at any way that can kind of facilitate that growth plan. And have you considered, have you thought, because what I find is people acquiring don't always think about the end goal. I mean, have you considered an exit strategy at some point in the future? Not really. I didn't, I guess that's why I went for, I don't, I don't want to say small business, but like something that I could have a significant majority ownership in with, with kind of the equity uh, that I had, because I didn't really want to be a forced seller. Obviously I, you know, I have this, a handful of minority investors, but for the most part it's me. And I, I will offer them a liquidity event in kind of five years we've we've discussed. And you know, they I could probably buy them out at that point or or kind of refinance or or whatever, because I know they may want a liquidity event. But if if the if the business is you know um generating a lot of free cash flow, I could use that to to reinvest in other interesting opportunities. I don't necessarily need an exit. I mean of course you know, if something super compelling comes along, I'm not going to say no. It would be silly to myself and to the other investors to to not at least have that conversation. But you know, that'll that'll be in years to come. But it's definitely not a necessary end goal. I know a lot of people have like a kind of aggressive or you know a specific strategy to get to, and that often means you have to acquire quite aggressively. That's definitely uh, not necessarily my plan. Like there is a lifestyle component to it. Yeah, I mean. I don't know if that really answers your question. I guess high level, not really, but open to it. Yeah, I think it's nice though. I think there are a lot of people doing sort of like the buy, build and sell. But, um, you know, mm. at the end of the day, my view is what I've learned in business um, is I'd, I'd never grow it organically and not from the ground up. I'd always buy it first. So, you know, you've gone in somewhere, mm. you've got a bit of a lifestyle that you enjoy and there's nothing wrong with wanting to keep that. So it doesn't, it's just a different type of strategy to someone who's buying up to exit, really. So no, it's good. Yeah. 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 I think both works. Yeah. So we're coming to the end then. So it's been really great hearing your story. I think this is going to be a really positive story for a lot of people. So where, where can people find you, Paul, if they've got deals or maybe they want to hear the, your um, buy and build podcast, where can they find you? Yeah. So, I mean, on, on social media wise, I guess I'm, I'm on LinkedIn the most. Yeah pretty much only on LinkedIn. And I do, I do have my own podcast called the buy and build podcast. Uh, if you're interested in, you know, listening there, it's, it's mainly focused on, uh, as it says, buying and building businesses with a kind of bias towards acquisitions and, and small business and probably UK focused, European focused. So we have on a lot of interesting guests like you, Julie, you've been a fantastic guest and we're probably about 60 episodes in now, give or take. So you know, that could be an interesting resource. And and if you want to send me, you know, a message on LinkedIn, it's just Paul Quirk. Uh, I think you can find me. Um, and yeah, happy to kind of add people to my network, meet, discuss with like-minded people. I think it's really cool to this kind of community in the UK and, and abroad of these small business acquisition uh, folks, whether they, you know, buyers, people look for like service providers and things like that. I think it's a really collegiate um ecosystem so i quite enjoy meeting people so feel free to reach out yeah great i love it i love i love this sort of sme acquisition space as well so well thanks so much paul it's been really great hearing your story and um thanks for sharing it well thank you julie thanks for having me um i'm excited to to listen in to future episodes of the podcast and and and, and learn more from you and uh yeah stay in touch thank you 
So, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. I hope you found it useful. If you think there's anyone else in your network that might benefit from our podcast, then please share it with them. Either just click the link and send it to them or send it in a Facebook group or other social media channel. Don't forget to subscribe so other podcasts come to you directly as and when we launch them. So I'm really looking forward to seeing you next time. We've got some really exciting things coming up and we'll see you again soon.